but they don't actually get to know me. I can just keep up the appearance, the image, as it were. I know enough. And uh, you asked me one time, not naming names, how that person came to church, and I said, Yeah, it's the other thing about that, which I think is, is germane, is that different people are different personalities, too. And some people some people respond to one thing, and we just have to kind of discern what that's all about. And, uh, all right, well, I think we're 1030, so we're going to start with prayer and start. Lord, with you. With my spirit. Let's blessed Lord, who has caused all these scriptures written for our learning. Grant them in such wise, hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which has given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. I was, uh, had to tell a little story. I, she didn't join us yet, but I, I had... Uh, spoke brief with Adriana this morning on the way to church, and she was on her way downtown Colorado to uh, meet her son for the Colorado Avalanche Victory Parade. They just won uh, the Lord Stanley Cup as NHL champions. And But the traffic was such, she wasn't going to make it, she might see her, but um, but I, I said, she said, Mike, come to the Bible, say, well, then I said, you get what is essentially the victory parade, because chapter 19 of Revelation <laughs> is essentially um, gloating, the, the, the elect gloating over the downfall of Babylon the Great and celebrating their great victory. So it, it's, it is a kind of apropos, uh, similar kind of thing. So. Um, and so that's what we had in, in our last gathering in chapter 18, we had the judgment on Babylon the Great, who we, who, who I have maintained for you is whom? Babylon the Great is uh, Rome. No, oh. Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem. Okay. And what was it in our study last time? There was a particular passage that connected to a passage in Revelation 18 that makes that connection so direct and obvious. I spoon feed you all too much stuff. It's one thing like they need to spoon feed you. They co-mingled with Rome. They became no, no, no. It's it's not. It's much more direct than that. A verse from last time that collects directly to something Jesus said. So, um, yeah, we 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 just need to because. Uh, we just need to nail down a few basic things here to make sure we know what we're doing. I wrote like 14 pages of notes. It's certainly in the notes I sent to you. I certainly sent this out. Oh, all right. 
Okay, so here's the verse. So here's the verse from Revelation, and then you can try to remember what Jesus said that connects to it. Okay. Last verse of chapter 18. And in her, this is Babylon the Great, was found the blood of prophets and saints and all who were slain on the earth. It certainly relates to that, that they, they beat the servants up and they finally said, I'll send my son and they'll respect him. And then when they don't respect the son, what will he do? He'll destroy those murders and we're up their city. But I just, you know, in, print this and that will be on your mind. So you need to do 19 today. Matthew 23. Verse 35. That on you, talking to the scribes and Pharisees and leaders, may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. So when Revelation says in verse 24 of chapter 18, and in her was found the blood of prophets and saints and all were slain on the earth, this clearly connects it to the guilt of Jerusalem, which Jesus himself says is guilty of all this blood, for their rejection of the prophets and saints. I said, you know, I mean, I know that not everybody takes the verses I sent out and goes and compares and looks them and highlights them, but I didn't. That was sent out. And I know it's, there's a lot here, but if you, if you can if you can just light on you know, that aspect of that, it's really important. So Babylon the Great is, um, is in chapter 18 of Revelation. Babylon the Great, of course, was an actual ancient nation that was the foe of Israel. But what we have in, in chapter 18, we had was a narrative transference because Israel has become the entity, Jerusalem has become the entity that opposes God and keeps his people captive. Therefore, she now, from the heavenly perspective, is Babylon. But the connection between Revelation 18.24 and Matthew 23.35 makes the connection between Babylon the Great and first century Israel pretty clear because you can't really find that Rome is guilty of all that blood. You can't find it any you can't find any pagan nation guilty of you find them guilty of a lot of things. Like you'll see at the end of Jeremiah, he makes a tour of the nations and pronounces judgment and there are various things that they're guilty of. But not the prophets weren't given to them. Yeah, they weren't given to them. And the only one, the only ones, remember, uh, when we talked about the identity of the four of Babylon as um, as Jerusalem is um, that on our site is that? We'll see if we can endure. It gets too loud. I'll tell you why. Forty-five. Minutes. Oh, it's a fence guy. Yeah. Um, so. 
The only one we talked when we talked about the identity between Israel and the unfaithful woman, we made a big connection to the Old uh, Testament passages, and you can look those up in the notes I sent out. We made the point also, the only time in the Old Testament that God likened a nation, not Israel, to being an unfaithful woman was a nation that in some way had a covenant relationship with God. And that was Nineveh, to whom the prophet Jonah was sent. Once, once God calls you to repent and is somehow ministers grace and mercy, you now have a relationship with God that has a higher standard than just some old pagan nation. And the other was um, uh, Tyre, because uh, Hiram of Tyre had furnished lumber for the building of the temple, and and so and and he had sort of come under the protection of the God of Israel for that reason. But no other pagan nation has ever been called a, a, a an unfaithful woman because to be unfaithful you have to be a bride. You have to be you have to have a vocation to be a bride to become unfaithful, and no pagan nation has that. The Babylon the Great and the Harlot are the same. Okay. And this is, they're both separate from the beast. And she rides back of the beast, which is wrong. Yeah. Now, the beast, um, I should say that um, the, the, the beast from the sea, uh, the beast in the land, of course, is, is uh, appears to be also another way of expressing Israel, who, who, who is on the, you know, there, there's, there's, there, because there's, you remember there's the dragon, then there's the beast from the sea, then there's a the beast from the land. Which, which is a sort of mock trinity, you know, with, 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 um, well, this is what makes Revelation hard and also fun and fascinating. It's why you go back again. It's why every time through it, it's, it's unlike, I mean, all scripture has a, a breath. And when you go back through it again, you always pick up something. But Revelation is so thick with imagery that there's always, you, you can spend life, that's why it's so fun. Because it gets you look at an image, and the image then has facets, and it, it goes off in a narrative way that isn't simply, you know, linear and prosaic. Yeah. Okay, so Babylon the Great has fallen, and we'll get to chapter 19 now. Verse 1. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, because he judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. Again, she was supposed to be a witness to God by her faithfulness. So the corrupting the earth of their fornication is an abdication of her vocation. And he has avenged on her the blood of his servant shed by her. And they said, Alleluia, for smoke rises forever and ever. Hence the victory parade aspect of this. Um, now, a great multitude in heaven. What does this connect to in Revelation that we've read so far? 
Where, where, did, where did we see that vision? Back in the beginning. A little later than three. Five. Keep going. Keep, keep on. <laughs> Six, seven. <laughs> So, if you remember um, that he had a vision, first uh, the vision of the, the one of the first visions of the redeemed oh, is. is the 144,000 on Mount Sinai. He sees 12,000. He sees each of the tribes, and he says, after these things, Revelation chapter seven, verse nine to eleven, I looked and behold a great multitude, which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palm branches in their hands. So this is the constituency of God's true people that he sees. So when he says here, a great multitude in heaven, there's also, and this also, I think, says something else about Revelation, which makes it profound, but also, you know, uh, has some complexity to it. So, this is a particular judgment in favor of God's people against the first century persecutor, which is Jerusalem. But there's an aspect of this that is timeless. God always judging um, the, un, you know, the unfaithful who, who persecutes his true people. And the great multitude is both that portion of it that was, you know, in existence in the first 40 years of the church, but it's the church throughout ages in, in heaven that rejoices over the judgments of God in all ages. This is a timeless, there's a specific historical application here, but there's a timeless image to this. And again, the, the other verse I want to uh, indelibly print in your mind that, that makes it clear that this is not a future image of people who will once upon will someday be in heaven. But Ephesians chapter 2, <clears throat> verses 4 through 7 says, um, God, who is rich in his mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, and, here's the key for it, raised us up and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Not sometime in the future, but right now. That's the position, is that's where we dwell. It's, it's brought out in the clearest sense liturgically, when, we, when we, we say, lift up your hearts, we lift them up to the Lord, therefore with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, that's where we are as a church eucharistically, is there. And participating in this scene of praise. Even though we live on earth, that's our true identity. So when Revelation says, rejoice, O heavens, you dwell in the heavens, that's us. Because we don't really live here. And the judgments that come in time for people's unfaithfulness don't pertain to us. We may, doesn't mean we have to get, we won't get hurt, won't get, won't die, but they are, that's part of our mortality, but it's not God's judgment. From that we've been saved. 
So the great multitude in heaven includes us, things of all ages. Now, the other thing we should realize is that um, God is praised for his judgment and his vindication of his servants. But it's this for the servant that the, that the servants slash martyrs have prayed for. So I want to refer back to Revelation chapter 6, verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they, they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who are on the earth? The martyr's blood cries out, How long, O Lord, who you will avenge? Well, till now. Now he has avenged. So... There, there's a lot of aspects to this that we should bring out uh, because it, I think we're uncomfortable with this kind of prayer, which, you know, that vindicate us. But what you'll notice um, is that um, okay. Okay. <laughs> Laura, I'm, 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 and so um, the the um, but it, it it really begins to help us. Revelation really begins to help us understand the Psalms because the Psalms. C.S. Lewis has a good little essay on the Psalms, but it, at first glance, it, it it doesn't have the normal approach to prayer that we would. For example. Um, uh, the psalmist says, vindicate me, O Lord. Defend my cause against the ungodly people. Like, that's not usually our default. You know, we're, oh, Lord, you know, I need this and that. But it usually isn't that. But you understand that this language of revelation ties completely into the prayers of the psalms for vindication against the enemies. Now, what happens in the spiritual life with vindication against the enemies, uh, because it's very localized, this is also a developed concept in the Bible. It begins with, obviously, David when he prays. It's very interesting, too, because David doesn't, um, the Psalms, even though we take them as being from the, from the hand of David, don't, like, have David saying, God slay Saul, who's chasing me. He always keeps it in a, a in this general sense that that makes allows enemies to be um, her own sense. To to well, so but let's 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 play this out. So the enemy is, of course, the the persecutor of God's people. In David's case, he is God's anointed. We know that Saul is a persecutor. All those with Saul gathering around him. Um, uh, and notice even there how this theme continues to, or, or has its origin or very similar way. So who's persecuting David? God's king who has fallen away from the true faith and who conspires with bad people to oppose the really, the true, the true servant. And David's praying for vindication against his enemies. And, and so Israel typically 
applied that to Israel as God's elect and the enemies as the Gentile goyim, the nations. But Jesus re-characterized that. And the main, well, the um, it, it's hinted at in the Old Testament in, for example, Job, where the Satan, the adversary, is revealed as an enemy. How is he revealed as an enemy? Well, you know, God's, God's chosen Job is humming along, prospering, and Satan says, oh, well, hey, let's... And just because he, God decides to make a bet with, the, with Satan, um, things afflict you. Of course, the bat is not anything visible, although it comes through Sabians, visible things. So, but Jesus makes it even more clear when he goes out in the temptation, first in the wilderness, where, where the clear enemy of God's people now is revealed to be the evil one, not Rome. Rome may sometimes do the bidding of the evil one and sometimes be the beast that represents the dragon. But Israel's true enemy is the evil one at the top, who, who, who threatens to pull Israel out of her true vocation. And so what you see in, in, in Jesus is his faithfulness to his vocation to follow God, not succumbing to the temptations in the wilderness that Israel did, allow him to move forward in righteousness and faithfulness, to fill the covenant and conquer the enemy. The enemy. And so in the spiritual life, we actually multiply the enemies primarily into three. There's the devil, there's the world, there's the flesh. But they're all brought out in that temptation narrative of Jesus. Right? The devil's there. The flesh, here have some bread. Uh, here have all the kingdoms of the world, the world. Um, and so so that, and this is brought out in, in, for example, Ephesians chapter 6, where St. Paul says, We wrestle not against flesh and blood, not against what you can see, but against principalities and powers that you can't see. Because, and this is not to say that, like, you don't have a visible battle. What he means to say is, within the framework of your visible battle, there's a more important spiritual one. And this is where, where remaining faithful in the midst of it is how you will conquer the enemy, and then God will vindicate you against the other enemies. And, but so the main way we, we get pulled away from our conquest is um, to become unthinkable. And if and this is this is one of the really important things in our time now, where people get so aggravated on social media or about politics or about news. It's not even that some people in those places aren't doing bad things. But our main weapon against those bad things is not mono imano. It's not entering into the milieu where that fight's taking place and fighting with the same stuff. It is faithfulness and prayer. 
through which God is, is with us and he will vindicate us and he will judge all that in his good time. And the main temptation the church falls into is to be pulled away from that vocation and to fight in those milieus the same way the world is fighting. And the minute you do that, you've already lost. Because the devil's already got you where you want you. Yeah, so that, that is really good. And I'm all for the devil being judged. I think what it does is it, it's sobering to me. Because I think that the people that I'm not, that it's like, you know, to me it's like, you know, you, you're playing with fire right now. You know, you're playing with fire. And it's, it's uh, I think it, it ties into God's mercy as well. Yeah, he's so he's so patient. It's all it's also one of the issues I think that, that Speaking of <laughs> my son. Um, when when we um, say this, okay, we make assert this biblical reality that the enemy that the main enemy are unseen forces. Yes. That is the very thing that the modern world is completely denied. Yeah. And even the postmodern world, which is admitting of some spirituality very seldom admits of evil spirituality. Right. It's just all my own personal thing, which is another version of so so that we're asserting that the main battle is one that most of the world around us says is not even a thing. And this is why the modern world is so captive, because it really believes that the only real battle is got to get more money, got to get more of this, got... It's really things that we arrange all of the physical things in order, the world will have lasting peace. And it's a lot. So, so the prayer for the overthrow of the enemy is getting back to this, is for, for the, the prayer for... Um, yes, we want people who are evil to be judged. People even now who murder Christians, people who, um, so we pray for that, but, and this is the key thing, <clears throat> for our prayer to have resonance, we must maintain our blameless status in Christ. If we enter into the milieu and respond to someone's vitriolic anger with our own, if we respond to their name-calling tirade with our own, we are now, we've been drawn into the world, and when judgment comes, it's going to fall on us just like it falls on them. So this is the idea of the blamelessness that St. Paul talks about, being blameless in the day of our Lord, maintaining that posture. It doesn't mean you can't speak out against evil. It doesn't mean you can't say that's wrong is wrong. But it means that you can't take vengeance into your own hands and we can't pretend that our main battle is a political one. It's not. And and this is it's 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 a big thing. Um, and so is so we pray against our enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, be aware that these other things that trigger us, which we may be justified because it's wrong, however, if we get aggravated at they may lead us into other sins, and so we wrestle. The visible enemy makes us in, makes us unaware of the, of the of the of the invisible one, and we fall into 
This, this is one of the reasons I tell people a lot of times they get aggravated. You've got to turn off the TV and stop looking at social media. I, 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 can't, I cannot maintain differentiation if I watch that stuff. It's aggravating and angering. So you've got to stop it. I think, I think we're absolutely kidding ourselves if we think we can live a faithful Christian life and live in the middle of that. Of that um, it's produced. It's, it's news that's produced. To, to create anxiety in you. Yes. They sit in their newsrooms and decide which stories will grab if you the most and make you to see their show versus the other show. It's not news. And it's not even what God is doing. This is something I, I was I went up to see Father Francis at St. Andrew's Abbey in Bayermo yesterday. We were talking about some of the work he's been up there for about 40 years, which is well, I like going up there because I've only been here 36. I need someone to do But he's talking about the work he does up there. He's talking to the woman he's helping and how a lot of people have kind of known what the, you know, what the monastery has been over the years. And, but you're never going to see a new show. Hey, breaking news. The monks of St. Andrew's Abbey in Bayermo are, 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 are this positive influence in the whole valley. No, you're going to get, you know, you, you, because, but that, why is that not news? It's not, it's it's not good news. But I, but I, but I would, I would, this, this is a point I try to make about news, because I think it gets back to the origin of the gospel, is, which is the good news. But what we call the gospel in the first century, nobody paid any attention to it. They paid attention to what Herod was doing, and what everyone was doing, what was, but the good news is the, is, was, the thing God was doing. So we live our prayer and we tabernacle in heaven and we see the world through that lens. We see what's really happening. We see what things really look like, where the beast is, where the unfaithful is, and how we, we understand where, where, how to comport ourselves with vision, with spiritual vision in the world. And, and we see where news really is. It uses every bit as much the good that you do today for somebody is the news, is what God is doing in the world. Wait, it's more important to be to focus on that, the actual good you can do in your world and life, than to turn on the TV and find out what they've decided is going wrong. And even those are, are, are chosen. They're just, they're, they're selected. That's why I don't think we can live this Christian life unless we pay serious, disciplined attention to what we, who we allow to, to narrate and curate our lives for us. And, and I just think we have to push this more and more because there, there, increasingly there's almost no source that doesn't have an extreme prejudice. You know, you like the, the great promise of the internet age, we could, you could get information everywhere. Well, you Google stuff now, guess what? You're not getting all the information. No, you're not. The, the people have curated the answer for you. Mm-hmm. It may be good. I mean, it's like you can't ever get anything. I still Google things, but I'm aware that it's not giving me everything that I could get. And probably one of the vocations of the church in the coming generation is to curate real knowledge. Here's what we should read to really know, and here's what, it, and and so, um, so we have to stay separate to not get drawn into that. Remember Revelation, what the charge to the to the God's people were: come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and share in her judgment. You can't get drawn into 
that. Um, as Father David used to say, you never wrestle with a pig because you both get really dirty and the pig likes it. <laughs> but that's what happens to Christians when they get into this. They're yelling and screaming with people who like to yell and scream. And that's not the weapons of our warfare. And, and sometimes we have to be content with the fact we're not going to win an argument. We're going to be unpopular. No one's going to like us. And we can't need to have that be different. Where does it come in with you? Like, oh, Goliath, because Goliath was mocking the army of the living God. That was an army situation. I was thinking about this this morning. And when you have to face the giant. Well, I mean, the, 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 the way that, you know, the, the, the feeding of enemies for David was, was clearly drawn out and, and drawn out militarily. He kicked everyone's butt. Because God, it gives, you know, and that was, that was, um, there's a whole nother discussion that which we're not going to digress into okay. how we understand this doing of the nations. But David was clearly a military conqueror who the scriptures say succeeded because God was with him. We, um, we understand the power in our battle in Christ is, is being, living in the spirit such a way that we're fighting the battles the way God calls us to fight. And the paradox for us, of course, is the cross brought a new paradigm. Because that's not what they expected Jesus to do what David did. They didn't expect him to give up. Yet the Good Friday led to the Easter. So sometimes that leaves us a situation where the maintaining of our innocence may be that we have to be in a situation where we don't get all the vindication we want right now. So, in verse 18, that we'll get to, in chapter 19, when the warrior king comes riding in in his white, white horse, yeah. the badass king. Yeah, yes. badass king. This is not like the meek Jesus. Well, and, and this, and this, and this, this of course is the paradox we're dealing with here, and it's why most people don't want to deal with revelation the way it clearly means to be dealt with as judgment, because like, oh, Jesus came in love, and he came in love and humility to offer it, the right. order's rejected, then he came in judgment to hold people accountable for it, and that's always two sides. Mercy and judgment are always two sides of the same point. And this badass king was always in Christ here on earth when he was there. That's like choosing to restrain that. You know, you could always act on that. So let's so let's move on. That's a good point. Let's, let's, so we've 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 uh, we've worked our three, first three verses over. Good, so. <laughs> verse, we're in verse four now. Oh, and the smoke rises. Incidentally, I, I sent the verse out. Her smoke rises forever and ever. Verse three. See Genesis nineteen twenty eight. It's a uh, an allusion to Sodom, where the smoke of, of, of Sodom rose. One last point about this, the, the prayer of the martyrs crying out. It isn't only just that, I think, that, that like, we say, oh, Lord, judge this. It's also that the way God has created the world is that um, injustice, behavior unjust rises to him and demands a response. The blood of your brothers cries out to me from the ground. 
you didn't have, you know, he's not, he's not. He, so there, there's the order. It's not only that where we have to, you know, pray just right. It's that the innocent status of God's people when they are persecuted, the injustice that comes, God, that the nature of the world is that it will be recompensed. If, 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 if it's not repented of, if it is not, it does not become subject to the mercy of God, it will become subject to judgment of God. True and righteous are your judgments. True and righteous are your judgments. Verse 4. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. The elders and the living creatures represent the church and all creation there. Falling down. Alleluia is used only here in the New Testament, which is a signature Old Testament word, so it connects this, this song of praise to the Old Testament worship, which just culminates God's final defeat, God's triumph of God and, and, and of his king. Note that the worship is physical. They fell down. It's embodied worship. It's the church has always understood worship to be what you do in your body matters. Verse 5. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Um, this, if we pay close attention to this, this has the, the sense of responsive worship. A voice, incredibly, you know, says, um, praise God. And the response is, from everybody else, hallelujah, the Lord God of different reigns. So if you think, you know, worship sometimes has this sort of quality, but being there, will, it will, you know, the choir, you would, you would imagine that the, that, that the whole scene would be pretty awesome. Verse 7, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and her wife has made herself ready. And to her was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Now, how has the wife made herself ready? by enduring faithfully through the persecution. And in that way, she follows exactly the pattern of Christ. How did he fulfill the covenant? By enduring faithfully through opposition, persecution, and death. So this shows us that testing and trial is an intrinsic part of the Christian life. It's not an add-on that maybe we have to deal with. It is, it is part and parcel of our vocation. And it's the way 
that we um, make ourselves ready. Feels opposition, we stay faithful. Which be that's what the test is about to reveal whether we are part of the true bride or for the unfaithful woman. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Now these verses, the, the focus shifts from God reigning in judgment to the revelation of the true bride. So she has been vindicated against this. We've judged the false bride. Now let's look at the true bride. Um, Wife has made herself ready, hearkens to the marriage imagery that's throughout the New Testament. The parable of the wise and foolish virgins who waited, kept their lamps burning, didn't sleep and slumber, but were watchful. And now the bridegroom, now, now that's ready, and now the bridegroom is going to about ready to show up on his white horse. The bridegroom's coming, they're going to be ready. Um, also, Ephesians 5. Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. That he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy without blemish. Now, sanctify and cleanse her. This is a significant image in the Bible that... um, The faithful woman, this, this bride, the, the, the bride of Christ, is not pure and spotless and clothed in fine linen because of her na- natural native qualities, but because God has sanctified and cleansed her and washed her and made her uh, what she was not naturally. We talked about this in church this morning with Peter and Paul neither of whom were on their natural strength qualified to be apostles, but became something they were not. This is something we had in our Old Testament morning prayer lesson uh, yesterday with Rahab, who the harlot in, in Jericho, who puts her faith in God and is made a part of God's people. It's an investment. It's, it's why in John's gospel, from which this genre of literature comes, there are really two women who were who epitomize God's people. One is Mary, the mother. The other is Mary Magdalene, the woman who, out of whom demons were cast, who was brought in from outside. And they're both an image of, of the woman. The woman caught in adultery, brought to Jesus, forgiven. Now go, don't do that anymore, because you, you belong to me. So it's all about being sanctified and cleansed not about the native quality. And so remember, so it's, it's we're, we're made pure by God's work in us, which is an ongoing work. Um, and one other, one other verse that um, ties into this marriage imagery is 2 Corinthians 11, 2 and 3. For I am jealous for you, St. Paul writes to the Corinthians, with godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you a chaste virgin to Christ. 
And he makes very clear in his Corinthian correspondence that they did not come as a chaste version. He says, um, there's one passage in 2 Corinthians where he talks about uh, who, who, all the people who won't inherit the kingdom of God, uh, sexually immoral, thieves, murderers, boom. And he says, and such were some of you, but you were washed and cleansed. Came in Christ what you weren't before. And this picks up the garment imagery because um, so so which which relates to baptism in say Ephesians four twenty two through twenty four in Colossians three nine. But in Ephesians four twenty two, Saint Paul writes that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that you put on the new man, which is created according to God and righteousness and holiness. And it refers to the baptism image of taking off the old clothes and putting on the new garment. But this is the continual work of the Christian life. We come and confess, we take off and, and put aside, and we put on forgiveness and grace from the Holy Spirit to God and do good works, because the fine linen of the righteous acts of the saints, as our as our we, we are changed, and it changes manifest in how we live. We, we, we show ourselves to be the bride. This is very Eucharistic. All of this is very Eucharistic. We enter again and grow into our identity as the bride of Christ, who in essential putting off and putting on. We live here, we're in him, and we're also growing more and more into that which we have become through baptism and faith, and will be completed uh, in ultimately in the resurrection. Verse 9, then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So, good to be here. <laughs> good to know this. The, the, to, to understand the heavenly perspective, the reality of evil, the blindness of the world. Not everybody sees that. Jesus said, blessed are the eyes who see the things you see. See, yeah, see, when that's what Revelation is essentially looking at the world, the first century world, and, and symbolically can expand out to the world at all times um, from the vantage point of heaven. What the true nature of these, what the true sacramental nature of these things are. From heaven, it looks a lot different than it does on earth. And the more we have the eyes of God to see, the more we can see that that which looks weak and poor in the world is actually Lazarus, who's going to be in Abraham's bosom. What looks great, you know, the negligent rich man is 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 it's not. It's, it's things are different from the vantage point. Verse 10, I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, 
See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, part of the image here is it's um, obviously the angel is making the point that he's not divine. But um, point that one commentator made, which is least worthy of considering here, is that not only is that the case, but you know, in the Old Testament, when angels showed up and people saw them, they were they're frightened and kind of trembled, and you know that was right. It, it, that, to 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 have honor and worship, or to honor someone greater, not necessarily worship. You can pay honor to somebody, but one if one idea here is coming out of um, Psalm eight that. Uh, what is man that thou art mindful of him, the son of man that you guard him? You made him a little lower than the angels to crown him with glory and worship. And part of the idea is the church has now been exalted to a status of equality with the angels in glory. And so it's no longer that, that there's a, a glory God has bestowed upon his church, that it's not right, therefore, for it to. To, to tremble before eight. I mean, it, it's it's on the same level of the angels. Might be the image here. I, I don't know that it's obviously the point, but it's a meditation that's worthy and biblical, I think. We're fellow servants. It's not that we wouldn't, you know, but it, it's, it's um, and that's that's the, been raised up to sit in heavenly places. It's like, oh. And it may even be that that's part of what made the devil so angry in the beginning, understanding what God was going to do, being mad about it. Sometimes we get mad about what God is doing because we think it's fair a different way. Just beware of what we're saying, we say that. When we're upset at God because we don't like his standards. You see, too, when Abraham had those angels visit him, he, I know, he was comfortable with observing. Verse 10. Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judge, judges and makes rule. So, clearly, we had the bride. Clearly, we had the bridegroom on the white horse, the conqueror. Um, a lot of these images are replays. White horse, Revelation 6-2. Faithful and true, Revelation 3-4. Judging with righteousness. That's a biblical theme throughout Psalm 72, too. Verse 12. His eyes were like a flame of flock fire. On his head were many crowns. He's king of kings, Lord of lords. 
He has a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. <clears throat> now, flame of fire, Revelation 1 4, eyes of the flame of fire. And this has the image of piercing eyes. They see through the surface to the inner. Uh, intent of something. Um, also, uh, Hebrews 4.13, where nothing is hidden from the sight of him. The name no one knows um, also is a restatement of what he said in Revelation 2.17. Uh, and the point of a name no one knows is based on the ancient idea that to know something, to name something is to control it. So when you, you know, you, when you have a name that no one knows, it means no. We know obviously his name is Jesus. It's not, but but it's 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 he is above. He he controls everything. Things don't control him. And the name we we should think of as Philippians chapter two, where God has given him a name which is above every name. That, that everyone bows to him. Now, the armies clothed in fine linen, this is the church militant, which lives or tabernacles in heaven, but fights with the word of God on earth. And so we remember that, that the image of Revelation is not, this is not um, the end of salvation. It's a, a periodic judgment, the end of the old covenant age, the judgment on the unfaithful, the vindication of the true bride, her revelation. But now him and the white horse, he's going to ride. And earlier on, the white horse rode to conquer, and we're conquering. This is the, what we call the church militant. The song a lot of people like, onward Christian soldiers marching as to war. Uh, so we're fighting this battle in the world with the word of God, maintaining the innocence. It's, just, it's the same battle. Verse 15, now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, the point is that in, in the vantage point of Revelation, where we've had a, a, lo, a, a, a localized judgment uh, on God's unfaithful old covenant people, the end of the old covenant age, the end of the covenant. But this is now gospel is out to conquer the world. So it's, this speaks of that. Um, and it's, it's allusion there, um, specifically to Psalm 2, where, it, where he talks about he ruled them with a rod of iron. That's my. Uh... Oh, you know, I know what happened. You, can you all still, still see me, hear me? My computer went dead because the actually, though I plugged it in, we didn't turn the power on, so it just ran out of juice. And that's what happens. But you can still see me, hear me, so we'll just keep going with this. I don't know whether, um, well, of course, we're only recording the audio, so that's fine. No one has okay, well, Sorry for the pause. Well, we can't see you. 
You can't see me? No, but hear you very well. Yeah, but you can see me here. You can't, you can't see the, bit, the, the picture on the, the big picture? Do you want me to turn it on? No, it, we only have five minutes left. Let's continue on. Oh, um, so the sword from his mouth, the mouth is a sharp two-edged sword, is illusion. The word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Uh, Hebrews 4.12. It's the idea of the word. The word is powerful. What God said. Because why? Because what God says will happen. And that's why when we live by the word of God, we can trust in the promise because he's bound himself by it. And um, Also, Isaiah 11, 4, a lot of references to the, the, the sword of his mouth. And Psalm 2 is really important, ruling the nations with a rod of iron. So he's going to have to conquer. Now, specifically, which? No. There are clearly some he didn't write. So, for example, Psalm 137, um, where, where he says... By the waters of Babylon, we sat down and wept. We remember the Ozion. The Babylonian captivity was 586 BC. David lived in 1000 BC. So he didn't write that. So there's a solemn tradition that carries on. And sometimes you know, sometimes you don't. Verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. He cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, put on them, the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. The mid-heaven thing there, the woes are pronounced from mid-heaven there. Now the invitation to eagles to feast on defeated enemy comes from mid-heaven. But this whole idea of feasting on the, on, on the birds, all these feasting on you is also a biblical thing. Uh, when David... Um, David said to Goliath, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then Deuteronomy, in the curses, the, the warnings to Israel, he says in Deuteronomy 28:25. When he says, if you don't keep my covenant, quote, the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. And you shall become troublesome to all the kingdoms of the earth. Your carcasses shall be food for all the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. And no one shall frighten them away. So my point about this is that the image to this revelation ties directly into those that, that curse in Deuteronomy pronounced against God's people if they became unfaithful. Verse 19, I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet worked signs in his presence, 
for which he was by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worship his image. These two were cast alive into the lake, burning with fire and brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword, which proceeds from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. This is not here an image of the judgment at the end of time, but image of the overthrow of this alliance of the of the beast from the sea and the beast from the land that is being that is being judged and so we just have to take that image that, that God has vindicated his people against them and from the standpoint of the um, of God's people who are vindicated the vindication is God's people having escaped the judgment and being safe now, free from that. And therefore, the judgment comes then on, on, on the rest who, who were not successful in their attempt. Um, so that's a pattern of interesting paradigm shift for me. I always thought the warrior came riding in on a white horse. It's an image of, of just the church going now, now having this judgment having taken place, the church is now going out to conquer the nations. Because it's just the beginning, it's just the beginning of the gospel, not the end. Refer to mid-heaven. Just the way they refer to it in Revelation. I, I don't know what okay. it means in mid-heaven, not <laughs> not way up there, but coming down. It sounds like it's pronouncing like not up there in the very throne room, but somewhere okay. in the middle okay. between, you know, well, that's where woe, down. the woes were pronounced, and that's where um, announcement that you'll be eaten by the female animals. Version of the Empire, version of the Western nations, which rose in the Version of the South, parties still working itself out. Well, um, I don't know if you heard online, Jack was quoting from a, a commentary by uh, on Revelation where he's talking about the conquest of the Roman, you know, how Christianity went out and spread. And that particular author holds to a point of view that was called Dominion Theology, um, which in all of its particular points I don't necessarily subscribe to, but the general point that, that the, the conquest, the way the church is spread throughout the world is a reflection of this, clearly it, it, it harkens to that. There we are at uh, 11.30, having finished our chapter. Now, let me say something uh, that um, I plan to be, our schedule calls for us not to meet next week, but um, because I was going to go on a trip, which I'm not going to go on, because the guy who was getting ordained got sick, he's not getting ordained, so I'm still here. So is there an objection to just, 
not taking that Thursday off, moving it all up a week, and just continuing on. Did anyone plan to go away because I said that, or, or, or did, it, did anyone even look at it? Is a question. Yeah, it been, yeah I would have got last week. Why well, are we meeting? It's like, oh yeah. So, so um, I will, I will correct the um, reading list. It says we're not meeting next week. We will meet next week. We'll move all the chapters up one, and we'll finish a week earlier. And take our break, and then we'll move on to, uh, and we'll think about what we're going to do. Yeah, we can do that. All right, let us pray. Lord, bless us and keep us. Lord, make his face to shine upon us, be gracious unto us. Lord, lift up his countenance upon us, give us peace this day and forevermore. Amen. Good to have you with us. Sorry for the delay. I'll remember to turn on the power next time. That'll be the details, details. Thank you, Bishop.